everyone. Welcome back to the Adventures Less Traveled podcast. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever taken a wrong turn and driven into a dangerous neighborhood? You didn't have any data. You knew nothing about the area. All you knew is at that moment, you should not have been there. You didn't stop to think, why is this area dangerous? Or how could I have made such a stupid mistake? No, you're hopped up on adrenaline. The only thing you're thinking is how the hell do I get back to safety? This is known as the fight or flight phenomenon in psychology. And this internal foreboding, this sixth sense of fear and apprehension is not just reserved for everyday situations like careless driving. In an adventure context, knowing how to act on these instincts could be the difference between life or death. This is just one of many aspects about human nature that's studied in psychology. And a great deal of psychological research extends to all aspects of human nature whether it's child psychology, social psychology, sports psychology, but surprisingly absent from this list is adventure psychology. Today, I have Dr. Eric Breimer joining me for the second of a two-part series on the psychology of adventure. Eric is a researcher at both Southern Cross University in Australia, as well as the Mana Institute, which is a rural and regional research facility focused on the link between mental health and the environment. Additionally, Eric is the primary co-author of Adventure Psychology Going Knowingly into the Unknown with Paula Reed, who we found out last time has some pretty wild adventures of her own, and 19 other co-authors spanning nine countries. Given Eric's academic background and research experience, I look forward to hearing his perspective about this very nascent field and what we can all learn about adventure through the lens of psychology. So with that being said, Eric... Thank you so much for coming on the show and joining me today. You're very welcome. Now, for those who might not have watched the last installment with Paula or are simply unaware, what is adventure psychology? Ah, how long have you got? <laughs> so, um, essentially what we're looking at, I mean, in the past, probably a way to explore what adventure psychology is, is to start with a bit of a history. In the past, psychology has has in, in many ways, in many areas, borrowed off other areas. So educational, so sport and exercise psychology, for sake of example, borrowed off educational pinnacle. And then eventually sport and exercise, people realize that actually there's something very different about sport and exercise that doesn't fit nicely under educational or clinical or uh, notions. And in fact, it's a very different thing because we're looking at how to help people perform effectively and in short period of time. So something similar is happening in adventure and has done over the last um, decade, a decade or so. Um, and we're now looking at, um, we're looking at rather than trying to think about how theoretical frameworks and other areas might be applied in adventure, um, we're moving into how, um, you know, the, the specific, um, psychology or psychological elements of adventure itself and how also how they can be applied to everyday life. So from that perspective, adventure psychology is a very much emerging field and we're in early days of trying to understand what it is about adventure that is unique, that is special, um, so that we can A, help adventurers, but also B, utilize this adventure, um, uh, the psychology of adventure uh, to help uh, people in everyday lives. My, my first sort of um, uh, real sort of thought about adventure psychology was way back in 2002, 2003, during my PhD, where I was looking at extreme sports and realized that um, uh, there was something very, very different when we're 
looking at people who are doing extreme adventures uh, as compared to sport, which was probably the nearest cousin, um, but also as as compared to business and as compared to other sort of psychologies that were supposedly performance oriented. And that's really piqued my interest. And then, um, and then of course, later on, we realized that the implications of that are that the psychological theories that we can't really rely on in other areas are no longer appropriate, um, or maybe don't do, well, maybe a better word is they're limited in terms of trying to understand adventure or trying to understand how adventure can help people in everyday lives. Yeah, it's it's as if you guys are trying to build a framework, like you said, to cement it as a standalone area. Now, the crux of research is being able to collect data, test your own hypotheses with that data, and then to the greatest extent possible, try to reproduce the results. Now, this is a particularly interesting field, even more so than, say, adventure sports, because the margin for error is so small. There's, there's no type one error. The type one error is you die. So what do you think are kind of the necessary ingredients to really demonstrate this field as a reproducible area of research, as, a, as, as something that can output results in, in, in that sense? So I, I think that one way to look at that is to sort of think carefully about what in adventure might be different than, than the everyday psychology or in particular than its, sort of, its, most, um, its closest cousins. So if we look at sport and exercise psychology, for sake of example, um, most often a sport and exercise athlete will do, or a, a sport athlete will do uh, and lots of training for a one hour, two hour, whatever it might be, competitive event. Um, you're looking at com- competing against other people. You're looking at the idea of winning and losing. You're looking at um, how to handle momentary or maybe an hour long. So a lot of the psychological techniques um, and a lot of the understanding of psychology in that context um, wouldn't fit a, an adventure an adventure scenario. So if you're looking at um, multi-day adventures, let's say, or even multi-week or even, you know, multi-months, um, or you're looking at an activity where you mess up, it's not a matter of, uh, you know, the, the, the ball has not gone in the basket or I've lost that game. It's a matter of, well, that could be my life gone. Um, when you're looking at something like that, you realize that actually, some of the some of the really important techniques in subordinate psych- psychology, which are which are you know used well, etc., such it don't really apply. You can't really shelve emotions um, for weeks or even months or even you know bracket them or put them in a box, which you might be able to do for an hour long competition or a couple of hour long competition because um, you don't really have the um, the luxury, if you like, of going home after the competition and because you're still out in that um, context, you can't really, um, you, you know, the, 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 the rules and regulations and the external environment, all those necessary things that come into adventure, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Um, they aren't the same, you know, we don't have a very constrained, you put your foot over that line in adventure, then you're out. Okay. The adventure is over. No, it doesn't work like that. Um, you don't have a, an understanding of what the rules are. The rules aren't something that somebody else has come up with and, and, and it, or regulations are externally uh, externally administered. They're things that happen. So it means that from a participant's perspective, the requirements for adventure, the psychological requirements, how we understand adventure, um, becomes something very, very different. One of the main ones, of course, is that interaction with the natural world. Um, that's a, a major element of adventure which is not in any other area um, in psychology, but is potentially arguably fundamental to what adventure is all about. 
and that changes psychology um, because psychology is no longer in the head necessarily. It becomes somewhere in between the head and the environment is that relational notion. It's sort of um, and how effectively we are attuned to information in the natural world becomes something really, really important. It's less important to be attuned to something like that if you're playing basketball or if you're playing football. Yes, there are environmental notions because you're, you're playing against another team. Um, but those environmental notions are very, very different. And and to your what you were saying earlier, it's, it's in the sport context, it's, it's shorter, right? And if you're playing an American football game and it's snowing, yeah, you have to deal with that for an hour. But that's that's a totally different context than skiing across Antarctica or something like that, right? So it's interesting when you say the adventure doesn't just end as soon as you get back, right? That that was kind of um, there's a whole chapter on like the narrative of like the hero's journey and how it's it's like the transformation of the individual, right? They go through the adversity. There is kind of that start and finish. But once they cross the physical finish line, it's all about how they've evolved as a person and how and what they've learned and grown as. So it would be interesting to look at like longitudinal studies of, you know, a certain cohort of people who've done whatever the, the activity may be, whether it's mountaineering or, or polar exploration and looking at how that has interplayed into the dynamics of the, the psychology of it too, you know? I think that idea is quite challenging. Um, and the reason it's quite challenging, which is one of the reasons why adventure psychology in, its, in itself is quite challenging, is because um, when does the adventure start? Um, for many people, the adventure starts way back when you're a child and you might have, suddenly you're the one that really loves climbing trees or rolling in the mud or you're the one that loves to sort of experiment with, you know, how you can build a bridge over a creek. And then that builds and builds. For some people, they, they you know, they might be involved in that, but then life changes and they become, they go into traditional sport. For other people, it doesn't work like that. Um, they, that, that sort of movement, um, or that, that interest moves into, you know, let's go and try scouts or on kayaking or something like that. So it's very hard to determine, which is why some of the psychology, some, some of the sort of, um, genetic personality and all those um, theoretical frameworks don't work so well because we don't yet know whether adventure tweaks people's personality or way of seeing the world and therefore what we're measuring on a snapshot is not so much are these people you know the, the traditional kind of um, sensation seeking risk taking these people must like adventure or if you're a risk taker you like adventure because we don't actually know whether they started off that way or whether adventure moved them that way Plus, of course, we're finding that actually there isn't um, anything along those lines. Yeah, adventurers come from all backgrounds. Adventurers come who have all sorts of personalities. The other element to that is that we have to be very clear, even with the adventurers' events, let's say. So you might have done 20 years of worth of training and, and you're hoping that one of, along that journey, one of the things you will achieve is, um, I don't know, climbing Everest, let's say. Um, we have to be quite careful where that particular event starts and finishes. For most people, metaphorically, it starts uh, at the beginning, at the bottom, and ends at the top. But actually, for adventurers, it doesn't. It ends back down again. You've got to get back down. So with a sporting context, the top is the achievement. Oh, I've done it. That's it. Fantastic. I've achieved my thing. Oh, that's, that's the end of it. But we don't have head of just to bring us down from Everest. We don't have, that's not where it ends. So where it ends, is, it's not like a tennis match. Yes, I've done it. No, no, you've got to come back down again now. And not only have you got to come back down, but you've got to come back down in quite dangerous conditions. You've got to come back down um, and, you know, with a sense of well-being, the other bit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got to be more than just alive. And we all know that actually where most accident happens is likely in that stage where people are coming down from 
um, having that sort of initial stage. So we have to be careful what we see as the adventurous journey. The adventurous journey isn't achieving the summit. It's getting back down safely from the summit. And that isn't something that we, um, you know, that we see much in a, um, in a sporting context, let's say. Thirdly, there's a really interesting, um, you know, really interesting phenomenon going on here. When we look at translating something like sport and exercise psychology, let's say into everyday or business context, because a sport is about achievement, it's about all these sort of things. Actually, we're missing the point. Sport is very much about focusing towards, as we've already said, short-term events. Life doesn't have focusing towards short-term events. Neither does business. Business isn't a practice now, a compete, practice now, a compete. Business, you're competing, if you like, all the time, or at least you're performing all the time. So then that's when we start to realize that adventure psychology is probably more um, appropriately and more accurately a metaphor for everyday life or for business environments and so forth than some of the traditional understandings of, um, you know, of, of how we might use psychology that, that might come from sport exercise or some of the performance area. So there's, there's multiple contexts within that, which I think are fascinating, um, not only because it means that we have to understand psychology different, and our psychological theories have to uh, have to be a, a you know have to be very very specific to the adventure context, but also the implications of adventure, um, what adventure might be, what we understand about um, an adventurous event in terms of an adventurer's journey, um, and all those kind of things where the way things um, uh, the way things are mixed up. Hence, narratives and people coming away or starting to saying how much they've changed and transformed. Absolutely, that happens all the time. Sometimes that can be because they built up towards an event. That event has been tough, hard, or it's been run perfectly. It is, and they've come away slightly different person. Um, sometimes it can be because of that gradual process of becoming more and more adventurous, and the and the more you get to know yourself. But what we're not saying here, though, is that everybody who does an adventure therefore is a fantastic person no some people do go to adventures because they want to prove themselves because they want to compete against the mountain because they want to compete a bit against the wave um but it's like the old metaphor just because a dog has four legs and a tail doesn't mean everything with four legs and a tail is a dog and just because some people may have sensation seeking personalities or may want to do it for for um uh competitive purposes or may want to do it, it that doesn't necessarily define adventure and in particular, it doesn't necessarily define adventure psychology. And and even those in, in, in that example where they they do it for the competitive reason, it it might be the fact that five years later or ten years later they look back and they realize, like, wow, look how much I've grown because of that. So then they they start to change their framework from a competitive mindset to an adventure mindset. Yeah, yes. Very much so. What we found in these more extreme adventures are that, that people get into it for all sorts of reasons. And for some people, it might be because they've seen a video and they love that heavy rock music and it looks really competitive and cool, man. And all those kind of, you know, extreme dude, etc. Some people might do it for that. But what we found very, very, you know, is that people very quickly change because if they carry on with that attitude and they don't have the commitment, they don't get to know themselves, they don't have those changes, they don't put the training in and all those other things, then either they're going to die or they're going to be very seriously hurt if they're lucky. And so then we either have people that drop out very quickly because they have picked it up when they're a teenager and they have done it because of all those reasons, or even when a young adult, and that's why they've been doing it. And they are prepared to put um, the energy and effort into it. Or they change and then they start to be a little bit more serious and they start to realize that actually there's a little bit more work to it. 
one of the downsides, I think, over the years, um, it's 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 a, it's a plus and a downside. But what we now have also is is the equipment that we utilize um, makes it much easier to do certain things that we couldn't have done in the old days. For sake of example, mine is whitewater kayaking. Um, if you take a modern kayak down a grade four now, you can bounce off whatever you like, and the likelihood is you'll get down the other end without much of an issue. If you did it when I started with the fiberglass boats, the first thing you hit, your boat would have had a hole in it. And then all of a sudden, you know, that's it. You've got a boat with a hole on, and you're in a grade four, and everything's going a little bit. So we do have the possibility for people to pick it up for all sorts of reasons. Um, but in order to sustain it, in order to keep it going, and some of the people, you know, I've, I've been working with are in their 60s and 70s, in order to keep it going that long, it's a lot more than the fact that I've got a boat that can bounce off things. It's a very, very different scenario. And most often what people go, what keeps people going is this sense of um, development, sense of uh, uh, having a better understanding of yourselves, and, but also that achievement with information, that achievement to the environment, that sort of sense of being part of the environment that comes that comes with it. So for the Manor Institute, what are some concrete directions that you try to test out or like what it, what is some of the research that goes on there specifically to what you were just mentioning? There's a number of things that are going on. One is we're looking at how adventure can enhance mental health. And this might be, you know, lower levels of adventure. We know from a lot of research now that um, well-managed adventurous activities and, and I'll, I'll, I'll say from the very beginning, there are some very seriously badly managed adventurous activities um, that are utilized in this context. So I'm, I'm not saying everything, but well-managed and well-designed adventurous activities have enormous positive impact for all sorts of mental health issues um, from you know serious complex traumas to, um, you know, to, to less serious issues. So it, it can manage the um, not well and bring people up to a point of being okay. But more than that, it's the same kind of activity can bring people from being okay up to the sense of flourishing and thriving. Some of the research we've been doing, for sake of example, shows that people who reach, who do the, 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 the required amount of physical activity per week, but do it in nature-based adventurous activities are far more likely to be um, in the flourishing and thriving group than people who do the required amount of physical activity, but might do it in a traditional sporting or a gym or something like that kind of context. So the the, the activities themselves are quite powerful interventions for all sorts of mental health and death and also physical health um, issues. What, why, why do we think that is? Yeah, there's two elements to it. Sure. One element is the interaction and the immersion in the natural environment. So the natural environment is really, really important. And that's, you know, that's a research area. The other area is the adventure itself. So um, so those two combine. Well, it's the third area, of course, is you being physically active. So physical activity itself is good for mental health and well-being. You do it in an adventurous context. It adds a little bit more to it. You do an adventurous context in nature-based environments. You add even more to it. So, you, so therefore, uh, the, the kind of adventure we're talking about is really, the, you know, the epitome of if you want to go along that continuum, it's it's the it's the it's the best version to do, um, to get the sort of benefits you get, because you've got physical activity involved, uh, which has been researched for a long time. We know the benefits because there is adventure, and we know that the impact of adventure could everything be from the realization that you can do something you didn't think you could, or learning how to do something that was tough, that can, in a way that is translatable into everyday life. 
And then also because you're doing it in the natural world, I mean, know that the natural world itself has enormous, uh, enormously powerful impacts on mental health, whether you're doing physical activity or not. But you put all those three together and you've got something pretty powerful. Sure. In the book, you, you mention a lot of future directions that it can go. Um, what do you think is kind of the most paramount next next step or next direction for where your research in particular, but also like the, the field as a whole, like where, where does it go from here? Yeah, I, I think, I suppose in a nutshell, it's integrating adventurous experience into everyday life. At the moment, it's something that is a nice to have, uh, um, hey, let's try it. But as soon as something gets a little bit struggly or something goes, it's the first thing that goes. And that's because people don't really understand how important and how powerful adventure is across the lifespan. So if we could find a way of integrating this, and, and we're, we're looking at adventure, we're not telling everybody it has to go and climb Everest or surf a big wave or whatever. There's a whole range of adventurous activities that can happen. And But if you if you are able to integrate well-designed adventurous activities, whether that's a forest school kind of adventurous activity, whether that's a, you know, a scouts or whether it's a Duke of Edinburgh or whatever it might be, but if those kind of adventurous activities, that journey... Um, where people have the opportunity to be physically active in adventurous contexts in the natural world. And you create it in such a way, like they do in Scandinavia, if you like, where it is culturally part of everyday life. And the systems in place allow that to happen so that there is no, um, you know, so there's, it's almost like there is an expectation or there is a um, a cultural realization that adventure starts and, and it's just part of, part of, part of your social kind of, um, social um, uh, uh, building blocks, if you like, and he carries on across the lifespan. That I think is the most essential thing for to happen. That way, we will that will impact on the way we design our local environments. It'll impact on how we see play areas. It'll impact on what we do in schools. It'll impact on the how we how we think from a public health perspective. It'll impact on the kind of ways that we use physical activity for people's health and well. I mean, in the UK, they did some research some time ago that showed that actually the, the 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 greatest increase in physical activity things is outdoor adventurous activity. People going kayaking or bushwalking or mountain walking or whatever it might be, and because people want it, but we don't yet at the moment. If you if you go to uh, if you look at political or social um, uh, social kind of traditional ways of looking at things, if you want to get people moving, what do you do? Well, you say play more sport. Um, but if we had adventure because of all the benefits it brings, integrate it, um, then I think it'd be far more powerful. Far more powerful for many reasons. One, it's essentially be play. Sport is too highly regulated. Rules are, and, and rules have this kind of way, oh, you, you know you got it right because, hey, you've done something that relates to the rules. If it doesn't relate to the rules, then it isn't right. Um, adventure doesn't have that, except for stay alive, maybe. Um, it's the competitive element of adventure. Unless, of course, you're starting to move adventure into the sporting notion, you start having competitive climbing and things. But mostly adventure in the way we look at it um, is not competitive. It's not about trying to beat somebody else or trying to whatever. It's about trying to see what you're capable of and improve yourself and, and develop. So so you've got something that has all the really powerful benefits that society requires. Um, and But for some reason, we still haven't integrated within society. Or some parts of the world don't. Some parts of the world do exceptionally well. Traditionally, of course, adventure was what was called life. Um, you know, wandering down the, wandering through the bush and, and you know, wondering whether you're going to be a saber-toothed tiger, et cetera. <laughs> that, that was life. Now we call it right. an adventure. Um, some parts of the world, you're still driving a moped with a fridge and five members of your family 
whatever. Um, in other parts of the world, that will be looked on as as whatever. Other parts of the world, it's still very much seen as um, you know society is integrated with the natural world and going out and being in nature, doing what we call outdoor adventurous activities, is what we should be doing across the world. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting point you bring up, per- particularly with more of like the the subtle from a policy standpoint, right? Like how can we, without being too intrusive or creating too many rules, like you said, like how can we implement something that's that's subtle, but still encourages people in mass to partake in adventures? And it's, you know, the most, most basic example would be like more parks lead to more people going outside, right? But in where I am in, in the US, in North Carolina, there's, uh, it's called the, the Whitewater Center. And it's, uh, it's all about like, um, they, they have whitewater rafting, kayaking, zip lining, bungee jumping, rock climbing, like all sorts of really, really fun, fairly risky, you know, um, activities that people can partake in. And like just having that in the area attracts thousands and thousands of people. But, but then you look at the greater North Carolina atmosphere and it's a very, you know, adventure driven state in the U S. So I, I, it is interesting how those kinds of, it, like like what you're saying, like how can we, you know, encourage people in a in a moderated dose of adventure? Like how can we encourage people to go out and be active in in that kind of sense? You know, it's it's important to take risk. You know, not unregulated risk. I think one of the intro stories in one of the chapters actually talks about. Um, I'm blanking on his name, but he uh, it was like how he he was a racer and he wanted to do all these really, you know, high adrenaline activities and people thought he was reckless. And he's like, I'm not, it's not reckless. I, I know exactly that the risks I'm taking and I'm, and they're very calculated decisions, you know? Um, so it's all about kind of having that. It, it's really, it speaks to the subtitle of the book, right? Going knowingly into the unknown. I think that's one of the most important parts. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we have to be quite careful with the I mean, I, I totally agree with him, but I think one of the things we have to be quite careful with in adventure is the idea of risk. Right. Um, not because, you know, not because necessarily it's a, it's a bad word, but what we do not want to do is have adventure um, and risk uh, seen as the same thing because they're not. Right, right. Yeah, and spoiler. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's right. Risk is, you know, risk is I have no clue what I'm doing. Uh, risk is kind of playing chicken running across the road. Um, and your risk is gambling, um, because there really is no, it's adventure. Isn't that adventure is, and this is where the environmental element comes because people think that risk is all to do with the activity and the environment, you know, and, 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 you know, how, how can I push myself? But actually most adventurers, including extreme adventurers, spend a lot of time training, getting the skills required. So I remember talking to a, uh, a, a really high level adventurer who's done really incredible things and he said his his attitude towards risk was that well it's more risky for me to drive on the road than it is for me to do the things i do and he's he's done some incredible things you know walked across australia kayaked across done you know everest type things he said more risky for me to drive on the road than it is to do the things i do the reason being is because i have the skills required to do it effectively I do an enormous amount of planning and preparation. I understand the environment that I am and I can read it really, really well. Whereas if I'm on the road, I have no clue whether that person come towards me is texting, is drunk, 
Um, right. I don't know anything along those lines. I, I, I have no sort of, um, no knowledge of this, no information, no skill to, to do that sort of things. And, and I don't know what's going on. Um, I can't look at somebody and say, Hey, you know, that person's drunk, um, at 200 meters away, I better move to the side, but I can look at a polar bear and think, Hmm, maybe I shouldn't be where I am right <laughs> now. I think I'll move away from this thing. Or I can look at the sky and think, Oh, it looks like it's going to storm. So maybe I need to. Or I can do all these sort of things. Or I can look at a slope and think, well, that looks like it might avalanche. I won't go that way. I'll go this way. But when you're on the road, you can't do that kind of stuff. So risk. It's it's, it's almost like a it, it's almost like a locus of control thing. Yeah, it's sort of is. Yeah, it sort of is. But um, the other side of the coin is that actually people. It is. This is where it becomes really fascinating. Adventure psychology. And as I said at the, at the beginning, it's emerging because yes, from a sport and exercise psychology perspective, locus of control would be the first place you go to. And it is to an extent. However, people who do high-level adventures say, actually, you can't control. All you can do is everything you possibly can to um, to, to 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 kind of um, make the best effort if it's going well, but you can't control the environment. So it's almost like do what you can, then surrender. And you're then in a position where you've done the training, you've got the skills, you understand the environment, all those sort of things that you need to do really, really well. But if something happens, you're not in control of it. it you, you're all you're able to do is be prepared and um, properly prepared so that the chance of things going wrong are minimized, but you can't control the environment. Right. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's an important, um, it, it's, it's interesting because humans generally don't understand probability. They, they, they have a hard time rationalizing, um, probabilistic behavior, right? So like if you say one out of a hundred chance of something happening versus 99 out of a hundred chance of something not happening, it's all about the context and the connotation of, of how you say it, right? So it is, it is, it's an interesting point you bring up about the word risk, like the connotation associated with risk where, you know, from a, say like a, a poker player might, there, there's a huge difference between a 20% chance and a 15% chance. But for someone just saying that person's reckless, it's it's like the, it's 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 a hard thing to quantify at certain times. So I think it's really important, like you said, to to emphasize the minimizing the risk and what is taking the route that that is in one's control to the greatest extent possible. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, it's one thing to risk when you're going to lose a few hundred dollars or a few hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, right, it's yeah. another thing to risk when actually the outcome is you're dead. Right. Um, so that's where the kind of idea of death wishes and the idea of those sort of things, because people didn't understand, well, if you're going to do that, you must be risking your life. Well, that's not the case at all. I mean, that's why the notions of risk and all those sort of things are quite dangerous if we're not careful, because people, the people we need to persuade to take what we do seriously don't get the difference between adventure and risk. And they're the ones that we need to communicate with. We need to understand very carefully how to use our language so people understand that actually this isn't about risk. Risk, it isn't about, well, if I make the wrong move, then I've lost $2. Or if I do this, then I've got a dent in my car. This is, if I make the mistake, then I'm dead. Or potentially I'm dead. Although I'm seriously in bad, a bad situation. So risk, it, you know, it, the connotation of risk is therefore they're deliberately doing that in order to risk their lives. Therefore, they must have a death wish. Or if they're not, then they can't have any fear because why would you put yourself in that position and still have fear? We know from research that none of those are accurate. 
So I think the way forward, which is why I say integration is the biggest thing for me, is that we need to think very carefully about how we use this language um, because the people that we need to persuade don't understand. You know, either they're business people and see risk as, as what they're doing, well, we've got to do something that says, hey, we're going to make a little bit more money, in which case they've missed the point. Um, or um, they're people that are adverse from it. it. It's rare to have somebody in a position that can alter policy that actually may have come from an adventurous background that actually understands it more that says yeah i get what you're saying so so that's really the point it's not so much yeah well anyway i'll leave it at that because that's really what we need to be quite careful about i think if we are going to try and get adventure um, integrated yeah no it's and, and it's really a i think the book does a great job of highlighting it's a very very thought-provoking book so i'm gonna shamelessly plug it here it's because there's so many there's so many nuances to adventure, and I think the one thing that is pretty apparent from the book is there's not really a universal definition of adventure, right? So someone who's lived in New York City their entire life, who goes to Mount Everest, that's that for them, that might be their adventure. But a Sherpa who who lives in Nepal you know, their entire life, who goes to New York City, crossing the street might be an adventure. And it yes. also go- speaks to what you're saying, how it's it's not necessarily a start and a finish, right? There, it's the transformation. It's the at, it's what happens before, what happens after, all the training, everything that goes into it. So it's a really interesting take. Now, you specifically um, have two sections, I believe, on the fear and on mm-hmm. the success and the failure. It's uh, success or failure is um, uh, Eric. Um, we did one on the ecological approach and the fear approach. So oh, that's what okay, we're okay. Yeah, yeah, no, that's well, okay. That's that's fine. It yeah. is two Eric's, um, but yes, the uh, yes. <laughs> the uh, those two topics in particular are very interesting because they're so intertwined in many ways. But it's also the fear is a the one point that you bring up in the book is that fear can be a, a very very good thing and it can be a life saving um, yeah. innate. I don't know if you'd call it an emotion or what what the technical term right. is for it, but it's it's a really interesting concept because that just like adventure takes so many different forms, and there's so right. many ways that fear is such an integral part of what adventure is that right. um, I think you bring up a lot of really interesting points. And so I guess I guess my question is of of everything that goes into an adventure, what, what is the best way that fear should be approached from a proactive, like a training standpoint? Because every adventure is in, is, is inevitably going to have some aspect of fear, right? So how, how should people approach that concept? In terms of developing skills, become an effective adventurer, there are, there are sort of three really important elements and fear is part of one of them. One of them is, and my argument has almost been that this is probably the most important, is effective attunement to information in the environment. So often when we learn adventure, we learn the skills and techniques to move a craft or to tie ropes or whatever it might be. But actually, in many ways, the most important skill we we need to develop is how effectively we attune to information in the environment. Fantastic. You can you can tie a rope or you can move uh, move a kayak around. But if you don't understand what the environment's telling you, then that doesn't stop you. It doesn't help you um, in terms of when things might go wrong. If you don't understand that the rock you're about to get on actually is going to collapse, doesn't matter how good you are with the knots, the rock's going to collapse. 
So to me, one of the most important things is how uh, is helping people attune to information in the environment. Now, that's directly related to the idea of fear, because one of the ideas of uh, uh, you know, if you look at that from that from that perspective, is the more effectively we attune to information in the environment, the more effective we understand that environment. Fear then becomes a channel, if you like, or uh, in some way that we're kind of a little bit um, we're not we're not a hundred percent clear on whether how. It, you know whether it's a channel or information itself but essentially what we're saying is that something is not right here my environment you know i've attuned so well in the environment my body is telling me that something is not right and instead of making that as something that is uh run away quickly that means i've got to pay real attention to this because um and so therefore fear becomes something that says you know pay attention becomes something that actually is a really positive um, aspect of what you become something that keeps you alive and, you know, people in the past, you know, often say, well, we don't, sometimes we don't even know what it is until it, until we see it, but we know we can feel it. The, the second part of it is the task. So that's the environment. And the second part is the task. And yes, the skills required to undertake the activity are absolutely essential. Yes, it is essential to be able to tie ropes effectively. It is essential to be able to place um, wherever it might be. It is essential to be able to utilize schemes, kayak, et cetera. Totally it is. But those skills without the inf uh, capacity to read the environment, um, you know, they, they don't go well, but having that, that skill, um, having those skills, attuned, you know, tuned so well that you can, um, perform in those environments is really important. The third element is you as the, as the, as the performer, the human being doing the work. Um, and that is the knowledge of yourself. So if you didn't, you know, if you don't, if you can't, um, if you aren't able to read yourself and, and you don't recognize the feelings you're having or you choose to ignore something like fear or you choose to do this no fear that you know let's do it anyway kind of idea then that's when things can go wrong because you're 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 sort of missing the point of of why you have that experience that feeling it's not a sense of anxiety or worry it's a sense of real world something is up that i need to pay attention to but if you haven't got the you know if you haven't grown well enough inside and these experiences, feelings come up, you'll miss that. So there's three elements to that. So I would say if you are going to, to train with a fear element, one of the first things to do is to help people read the environment really, really well so that they can understand that the, you know, what the environment's saying and they, they get that trim. The second one is to reframe this experience that you're having, not as something to run away from or something to fight or is something to conquer. But as but as information that that is that is or at least giving you the sense that you need to look out into the world for something because there is something uh, your body is telling you, um, and and of course eventually to develop the skills you might need to do that. The the the, the individual thing gives us one more little element to it, and that means the psychology is no longer in the head, and that in itself adventure brings out uh, more than any I think more than any other psychology. Although sport and exercise psychology does do it. Psychology is now in the body, but not just in the body. It's in the relationship between the body and the environment. So your um, experiences are very much embodied, and that embodied experience comes from that relationship. So all of a sudden, psychology is a lot bigger than something that goes on inside the brain or inside the head. Yeah, and it almost seems like the secret sauce to all that is the exposure, right? So if if there there has to be some kind of happy medium between how much exposure one has to to those elements but to a limit right because if someone who's been 
a total house hermit their entire life. They never stepped out of their house and, you know, they get this huge inspiration to do some mountaineering adventure or something like that. Like you're saying, they can't just jump right in with this whole no fear element. They have to, they have, there has to be training and preparation and, and so forth. And so it seems like starting out with small exposure to adventure is, is advantageous. But then once you get like to the opposite extreme, when you have people who are skydivers and, and everything, and, and there's a part in the book where it mentions overexposure to extremely dangerous or harsh environments has an increased likelihood of, of death. So what is kind of that happy medium and like how does, how does exposure play into those three elements? I, I think the key is one size doesn't fit all. And I think we've got into a bit of a pattern at the moment that assuming one size does fit all. So when we start introducing people to adventure, we have 20 people and we say, this is how you use a kayak or this is what we're going to do. And we all do exactly the same thing. We don't, you know, we, we, it's, it's very unlikely that we figure out, you know, even in, in adventure based learning, it, it's, you know, it's very unlikely if you spend some time before the adventurous uh, experience to get to know the individuals, to find out a little bit about them, to understand a little bit more about what might be adventurous for them so that we can tailor what we do and make sure that it's it's appropriate for everybody. And it's very unlikely that we go after the event. No, they just turn up on a bus. We get them all off the bus. We say, right, we're going off to go and do this. And they go back on the bus and they go, oh. Um, so I think the key is we have to understand that one size does not fit all. And actually, you might get, and we've seen that in the past, where we have an actor who decides they want to climb Everest, so they go up into a gym, and they come very, very fit by doing the um, stair thing. They get all that stuff done. They do a bit of training, and then some somebody, some guide or something like that sort of basically stays with them all the way till they get to the top of Everest, or almost as far as they can go and come back down again. But that's how Everest, you know, the Everest tourism thing almost survives, if you like, is because people with a moderate amount of skill, moderate, in some cases, excellent skill, of course. I'm not saying everybody like that, but there are there are quite a few people with moderate levels of skill who, if you like, are guided up and guided down. And then we get, of course, the other side of the coin, people who go up, up there and back down again without oxygen on their end, solo, and, you know, blink of an eye. So the, the, the key to that is one size does not fit all. The second key to that is that means that in terms of, let's say, the notion of exposure, um, we have to have different ways of understanding. We have to think about that differently. Um, and you know, if you could, as somebody with one person could get a really good knowledge, um, of environmental, how to read the environment and be able to interpret that and translate that into other contexts relatively quickly. Somebody else could struggle even to notice certain things in the environment. And so therefore their capacity to move on. Where we need, what we need is all those three keys: the activity, the environmental, and the and and the individual aspect in balance. Once they're out of balance, I the environmental exposure is too great because of this, because of their technical skills, because of their uh, their their individual understanding. Then, that, or once they're uh, you know once one of the, one the, one of those things is out of balance, that's when things don't work so well. So we need to get all those three things in balance. The other thing, of course, is that. Um, you know, depending on what kind of adventure we do, walking is a relatively everyday thing for most of us. Walking in a particular context makes it a little bit different. With a backpack on makes it a bit different. With the intention of sleeping overnight makes it a bit different and so forth. So exposure is definitely part of it, um, but it has to be balanced and it has to be done in a way that suits the individual participant rather than assuming that this is the irrelevant exposure you should be going at your stage of whatever it might be. 
Sure. Now, tangential to that, are there certain types of adventures or certain in, in adventure environments that are more conducive to uh, growth and learning? Or is it, or is it like, I guess, is it kind of an across the board thing? Or is it just like the, the last question where it's kind of an individual uh, component? Across the board thing, everybody will benefit from adventure. But what we need to be careful of is what adventure means to every to each individual. So in Melbourne now they built um, they built a playground which is basically made of rocks or it looks like it's made of rocks. Um, and instead of you know the, the trouble with the traditional playground for sake of example is there's maybe one or maybe two things you can do on each each of those ones. You can slide down something or you can climb up it. If you have a more natural environment, there's a multiple things you can do. And there's no dictation, even the social kind of mores of how you should use this piece of equipment because. It's just, you know, you can pick up a stick and whack it. You can climb a tree. You can hang off it. You can fall off it. You can do whatever you like. So what by creating environments that allow people to see the environment in a different way and therefore to experiment is really important. That's why things like parkour and things like that are really, really interesting. Not just because of the movement that comes from it, but also because they allow people to see the environment, their everyday environment in very different ways. Socially, we have the stairs and the banister that says, step up these things and hold the banister. Parkour says, well, why don't you slide down the banister or jump up the wall? You don't have to use the steps. But we have been socialized into seeing how we move even through our urban environments in particular ways. So part of it is educating people towards other ways of moving and other ways of seeing the environment. Secondly, it's then to give people the skills, and that's psychological as well as technical skills, to move through that environment in that particular way. Um, so even in urban environments, adventure can happen. Um, we've just got to get through the cultural kind of um, restrictions, if you like, that mean if you did climb a tree, if you're walking down the middle of a city somewhere, uh, before long you'd have the council there saying you shouldn't be climbing up that tree, somebody might fall out and hurt themselves and whether we get sued. Actually, maybe we should be encouraging people and kids to climb trees and actually the families that are allowing their kids to do that uh, have got it right. But we need a lot of big society, societal change to make that happen. That's a <laughs> that's a great example with the parkour. I, I never... I never thought of it like that, but I guess it really is um, just the perspective that that you look at it, right? Now, in a in a related but different, totally different area, um, the success failure idea, right? So there's an entirely different area of fear, which is like fear of failure, fear of um, you know just just letting people down, and 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 that that's a, a totally different kind of fear that is not necessarily the environment itself, but it's more of like, I guess almost societal or like how- It's a social environment. So, social, yeah. So how do those yeah. two kind of interplay with one another? Yeah, that that is very, very interesting. And I don't think we'll probably know the full answer to that one yet. I think we're in a position of saying we need to find out more um, uh, of that one, but, but very much the social environment acts very similar to the physical environment. Um, and um, and for some people, especially if you're caught in, you know, it's it, it's very challenging depending where you get from. But if you imagine you're a sponsored athlete, and the only way you put food on the table or get your um, mortgage paid or whatever is that you do these particular activities. But um, I, I can remember speaking to you know one um, extreme kayaking um, adventurer many many years ago, and and he he when he first started. He said it was, you know, I was almost doing things that I thought it, that that 
that um, I shouldn't have been doing because the money, the sponsorship and all the rest of it. Um, and that was a sort of social sort of, um, you know, I don't want to let people down or people have just spent six hours preparing for this um, one shot. And, you know, the last thing I want to do. And and he said he was lucky to get away with his life um, quite a few times. You're really lucky because he didn't listen to himself because he didn't think, actually, you know what, I'll do this tomorrow because of all these sort of things. He said, but gradually, you know, I was able to work more effectively with them. And it, and we would do a thing of making sure that everything was right before we set up. Um, so, yes, that is definitely there. Um, and depending on the context and the individuals, of course, that will have a slightly different impact. The other element of fear, of course, is the, the, the element of fear of um, uh, this feels right to me, but I have a family. Or what am I, you know, and, and I used to get asked that question a lot in conferences in the early days. And the way I tried to describe it often was, well, you know, it's, it's almost like adventure for many serious adventures is almost like it, it's part of them. It's part of their body. So would you ask your significant other to remove their arm and in order to, you know, to fit in socially? And it's, yes, it's massively uncomfortable for those that are on the sides, for those who are not adventurers, but have somebody who's an adventurer in their family. And that's often why, you know, adventurous um, uh, adventurous behavior in young people is stopped because um, people get a little bit, I'm not sure about this. I don't know. Maybe they shouldn't do it, et cetera. Um, right down, of course, we can get sued. We're, we're, we're struggling with that at the moment, I think, as, as many societies across the world. But I'll move back to the point earlier on. Once upon a time, what we now call adventure was called life. Um, and we've lost that. So somehow we have to bring it back. Somehow it has to be integrated within our, with our social kind of structures again. Somehow we have to see adventure, adventure um, as absolutely essential to um, effective human development. And um, because of its potential impact of all sorts of different health, educational, social kind of things, somehow we have to get all that back. And the adventure psychology notion is really, I suppose, the start of that. Um, or not a start because it's been going on adventure education and all those other areas as well, but but another way of bringing it together um, to to you know to to hopefully understand it more and utilize that understanding within broader uh, society. Sure, I I think that's a, that's a that's an excellent proclamation to to end this on. But before we go, I want to ask you how do you, how do you personally define adventure? Uh, for me, it's about, as I said earlier on, it's about, um, uh, being in, um, for me personally, about being in natural environments and, um, uh, in ways that whatever you're doing in that natural environment, the natural environment is essential to that experience. Now that could be gardening. Um, but for me, if you're, it is more likely to be kayaking, mountain biking or something along those lines. And then we get continuum as adventure, of course. We get those that are adventurous at one end and right to the far end. So to me, it's that integration of the person environment. It's about growth. It's about change information. It's about having the skills to participate at that level. Cool. Well, that's that's about a wrap. I think uh, I think I think this was very informative to to hear your perspective on more of the from more of the academic angle how we can go from here. And uh, I, I'm excited to watch this field grow. So so thanks so much for coming on the show and, and thanks everyone. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll catch you next time.